You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Energy Insiders podcast in 2021. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as he has every episode or just about every episode for the last three years, David Leach from ITK Services. David, how are you? I trust you've had a good break. Uh, I've had a good break. Thanks very much, Giles. I trust all our listeners have enjoyed the break and uh, the weather wasn't that hot until very recently and... uh, you know, we're all finding out what Australia's like now instead of what it's like overseas. And I, th- I believe you had a good time in Tasmania, but we won't talk about that. Otherwise, it'll be a very long podcast. Oh, I'll just talk about it very briefly. It's nice to get a 100% renewable state and drive an electric vehicle around that. Um, and um, I shall be writing something about that sometime soon. But um, look, a few things have happened while we've been away. Look, it's been just over a month away. We've got a new administration in the United States. Donald Trump is gone. Well, at least he's not in the White House anymore. Uh, Joe Biden is there. He's become very proactive with some of his climate and energy policies back in Paris, talking about a zero... Um, emissions grid uh, just announced all the government vehicles are to be electric, although he hasn't given a date on that. But um, a lot happening, but not much apart from a little bit of rhetoric changing in Australia, it would seem. No, I don't think. See, I agree with you. All those points about uh, what Biden said. I think the uh, in Norway, uh, you know, all very soon, all it's eighty percent electric vehicles, new sales are already. Uh, China electric vehicle sales really accelerated uh, as the year went on and there's lots of policy around there. So things are moving. Australia will just keep going. I mean, in the end, we we run down federal policy, but the the fact is that Australia is making a very fast transition and we shouldn't, we can be very proud of what we're achieving in behind the meter where I think we're at the uh, forefront of the world. And uh, I hope that we can talk about the opportunities that behind the meter presents as well as all the hydrogen and, and big utility stuff uh, to, to develop a better grid as the year goes on. Well, indeed. In fact, we have a bit of an opportunity to talk about that in our invited guest um, this uh, this week. And that's actually interesting. Um, we are seeing a... Uh, it's interesting, this sort of the... Uh, um, oh, God, what's the word? The contrast between these mega hydrogen projects a lot of which don't actually sort of are not really able to be built right now. We're kind of talking about sort of a few years in the future, but they are mega in size. And as you say, the sort of the aggregated distributed um, energy assets. Um, and I think that's going to be an interesting tension as we go forward for the, um, for the, for the future of the industry. Yeah, I also want to mention for those that haven't seen that uh, there's a great carbon brief published Zeke House Fathers, who we've had on this podcast uh, state of the climate, uh, as he does each quarter and particularly at the end of the year, pointing out that 2020 was the second or warm or the warmest uh, year on record, that the land temperature now is well, above, I mean, the global average is about 1.2, uh, but the land temperature increase has been a lot uh, bigger than that, uh, that um, uh, uh, sea levels continue to rise. Uh, uh, the Arctic ice extinct was the second lowest ever and the Northwest Passage, uh, was open for much longer than it used to be historically. And so there's still a lot of change going on. And I think the underlying reality of that physical change 
is what's going to be why I've always been confident that there will be enough policy around to support the tra enormous electricity transition and keep very many people interested and employed and pre pre present lots of money-making opportunities and, and loss-making opportunities uh, for the industry for years and years to come, Giles. Absolutely. And um, I should also point out that that, um, that uh, temperature rise last year was in a La Nina year. So goodness knows what it might have been had it been an El Nina year. But look, on that energy transition, we've actually got an interview uh, with someone who's been wrestling with this very issue and distributed energy and some of the big um, other regulatory decisions over the last decade and more. And I think we should hop straight into it, um, David. It's with... Uh, Alistair Parker, who's the Executive General Manager of Networks and Public Affairs for Ausnet, uh, one of the leading electricity distributors in Victoria. Alistair Parker, um, Head of uh, Regulatory Affairs and External Affairs at Ausnet. Thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Uh, thanks, Charles. It's a joy to be here. Well, it is actually. It's our first of the year, um, so um, it's a um, very special event, of course. And uh, welcome back to all our listeners as well. Alistair, the utility industry, energy industry, is evolving at an extraordinarily rapid rate. Um, I'd imagine it's getting pretty hard to catch up. I mean, imagine if you thought about a decade ago of what it would look like in 2021. Were you even close? Uh, no. No, I was uh, I was disastrously wrong. In fact, Giles, which uh, taught me a bit of humility. Uh, some of my colleagues at Osnet still tease me um, when we first saw uh, solar really start to have an impact. Uh, I was uh, very confident, as I said, that it couldn't be solar that was affecting demand that much because it wasn't even the thickness of the line on the graph, as it were, and. Um, of course, I've been thoroughly proved wrong with how quickly it's grown and um, how successful it's been. But it seems to me that we're only just at the start of this transition. I mean, solar now is, what, less than 5% of, um, of total electricity supply, and it's forecast to grow significantly more than that, perhaps even tenfold over the next 10 to 20 years. Giles, I want to uh, cut in there and just say it's more than 5% uh, if you take utility and behind the meter together. Uh, I'm, I'm just uh, No, well, that's right, yes. Go on, yes, sorry, excuse that's me. That's right. Yes, it's um, about 5% for rooftop solar, but um, probably just under. But anyway, getting up there. Anyway, Alistair. Um, yeah, exactly. Just at the beginning. And I, I, um, I spent a bit of uh, this week just reading the ESB's post-2025 uh, market design questions. And it did strike me to exactly your point about speed that um, – a lot of the things they're talking about won't really wait till 2025 to be uh, dealt with, as it were. They're, they're live and they're pushing now. Um, but also, to your point, none of us actually know what this is going to look like or how it's actually going to work. Uh, and so the bits I liked and what they've done are where they actually sort of reflect on uh, needing a kind of learning process as a holistic system. And uh, can I just go on from you mentioned the uh, that post twenty twenty five document which 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 I read and I, I think I was just I guess myself a little disappointed and I wasn't as usual shy about saying that but I mean uh, it didn't seem to have much of a role for networks and in particular I guess I wondered if you could reflect 
from your considerable experience in, in, in network regulation, how, how what you think about the overall model. The more in recent times, I've been thinking that it's the separation of finding a separate market for every little new thing is, takes it too far. And we're starting to lose the synergy of being able to have an, an, an integrated, you know, uh, utility where, where, you know, I guess take a community battery, it could it, it offers a network service and, and, and a retail sort of uh, thing as well. And maybe a generation thing. Uh, anyway, I just wondered what you were th if you had any sort of comments to make on the whole regulatory model and, and where it stands at the moment and where networks are going to fit in as we go forward. Yeah, I think it's a great question. And it, it's, um, it's something um, I've sort of been trying to think about over the past three or four years. And, and there's a lot of very clever people uh, involved with ESB and, and thinking about this more generally. But I, I really struggle with uh, a zero marginal cost world um, juxtaposed with we're going to rely on uh, real-time spot markets to solve every problem. I think if people, you know, we've sort of relied on uh, marginal costs of gas or coal or whatever um, to set market prices, and there's been no demand response uh, in, in really practical terms. And so you've had this um, bid stack. I just don't know how that's going to play out with zero marginal cost demand. Now, obviously, what the ESP is betting on is that by having a two-sided market, uh, and by allowing um, consumers to express their preferences, you'll you'll get a proper sort of um, uh, equilibrium point, and you'll get a proper price set in all these various markets. I I just don't don't a hundred percent have that confidence. Um, really clever people tell me that of course it will work. Uh, demand always eventually uh, sets a price, um, and you know we see that in lots of lots of markets, but. Um, I think it's quite tough. And I think as you go through uh, the the sort of transition and the pace that both of you were talking about, uh, I do wonder if it's kind of pragmatic to say, well, look, here's a few things that we're going to take out. They're going to be essentially capital expenditures. Um, it's going to be essentially by getting the lowest rate of return we possibly can on those capital expenditures if they're the right sort of monies. And, and just regulate... Um, the life out of park of the market and then allow the pieces where competition, where uh, demand and supply can really work, uh, allow them to go. And I, I'm thinking of things like the so-called synchronous services um, and, you know, frequency response. Uh, I think that's interesting. Yeah, I, you know, I've been thinking of it. It's one of my personal theme uh, uh, topics I hope to re we can return to on those synchronous services. But I just wanted to focus you back on networks. Uh, you know, uh, like Victoria's had more experience with time of use meters now. And as my understanding is that their actual use by customers for retail prices is not that that great, but that the networks themselves are finding them. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you see the networks evolving in the sort of orchestration, because in, in my mind, networks kind of compete with virtual power plants as, as the sort of candidates to actually orchestrate behind the meter. And, and in, in my, you know, I wonder whether networks aren't a more ready-made sort of uh, institution to do that. Yeah, I, I think the, the, the um, I think that's right. Uh, 
The most important bit to all of this, though, is what's the customer sort of appetite and how do you uh, kind of encourage that? Um, so we had very little take up on time of use tariffs, uh, even when we deliberately sort of skewed them so that they were a rational economic choice for virtually anybody to go on them. And people just didn't opt in because they, I guess, suspected our motives. But but most people would have been better off on them. But it was it was tens of people who signed up for it, not um, thousands of people. Um, and, and so I think this sort of uh, what's the cheapest way to um, roll out this sort of facility? What's the what's the product that people actually want to buy from it? And then um, how, how does that become efficient and an efficient market? So I, I, I actually think the technology and the kind of rollout of the technology is, is kind of um, like it's important. It's vitally important, but it's not as important as actually really, really super engaging with the customers uh, and working out what they want and, and how they want to be communicated with. I, I keep using the example of... Um, EDF, uh, Electricity de France, who, when they rolled out smart meters, um, they just really, really had a learning process. So they started off, uh, I think their first test was 5,000 customers. Their second was 40,000 customers. Their final test was uh, in an area of the network was 700,000 customers. And then I got to see what they were doing in their program uh, once they were on the national rollout. And it was just so impressive. Uh, the sort of flippant way I put it is um, their uh, their material in English explaining this to the few English customers they had was better than any of the material we did in uh, in Victoria because it had been really thoroughly tested out what resonated with customers, what got them excited, um, what would actually work for them. You know, it was well market researched. And I, I just, um, uh, I think using um, a sort of collective program, whether it's uh, retailers, but, you know, probably networks are in a better position and really making sure that we have um, uh, kind of collaborative processes across the whole of the market that, pick one area, run some tests, share that information and develop it. And the one thing I really liked in the ESB work was they talk about this maturity plan um, for the, the two-sided market and DER. And I think that's the sort of spirit of, of um, learning that we need uh, across the market. So I, I think the question is more, you know, retailers or networks. We all collectively provide a service to customers and how do we get some governance and sort of learning processes around that that allow for new entrants, allow for growth, um, allow for us to make mistakes, but not to sort of commit to billion dollar rollouts of new technology every um, couple of years. <laughs> I've just got a couple of quick questions, um, Alistair. I'm um, just get, ro rolling back a little bit. Um, you just sort of said you don't really have any idea. No one actually has any idea about what this future market looks looks like. So how on earth do we design a new market rules for it? Yeah, yeah, but I, I think that's exactly my point. Um, we've got to try out some things that we think will work in 
um, smaller but credible situations and then scale up that learning very quickly. Um, I think particularly around the um, uh, sort of consumer dynamics, you know, we see real interest in community um, energy. People have sort of lost trust in big businesses. And so we've been involved in a couple of community groups who've done some really amazing things. I, I got a level of sort of awareness in the local community and good decision-making in the local community um, that on a bigger scale is very hard to get. You know, it's hard to get people to pay attention mm -hmm. to energy until they have a problem and, and community groups offer a way to do that. So back a few of those, see what works, see what doesn't. Uh, so, tariffs, you know, I can go through the whole list, but every single aspect of the market would really benefit from kind of genuine trials that are shared and scaled nationally. And and, and flexibility and, and adaptability. Um, before, David, I think it's busting to ask um, some, some stuff about sort of synchronous um, um, whatever, but um, I, I just wanted to just, sort of, um, just have another question and just ask about um, orchestration and customer preference and how do you define that i mean i guess when we hear about orchestration we talk about the ability of the networks or the market operator to curtail or curb or manage the output of rooftop solar to the extent where some of it actually may be cut off if, if necessary because of sort of network issues um in South Australia, where we're seeing the first of this being rolled out, we're told that this will be a very rare event and will hardly ever happen. In Energy Minister Taylor's document late last year, they were talking about it happening quite regularly. I mean, almost like a quarter of the time. It's um, seemed quite extraordinary. How do you actually see that happening? And, and, and what sort of consumer acceptance of this do you imagine um, there will be? I think this is enormously difficult. I have to say, and um, and the problem is, there will be if we don't have some sort of, um, and I, I use the word almost deliberately to be provocative. If we don't have some sort of rationing system uh, in place, then what you get is more frequent blackouts, unfortunately. So um, you know we can't overload the networks. We've got to have a way that sort of fairly allows access to it and reasonably economically efficiently allows access to it. And, and I just don't think um, many of the people who've, um, you know, enthusiastically put solar on the roofs, I don't think anybody's explained to them that the system, that the network might not be able to cope with all of it. So they're going to be pretty disappointed uh, when we come along and say, well, there might need to be some, some rationing processes. We've done some uh, good work um, that, uh, with other network businesses that I think is really exciting that does turn this into a dynamic process and does actually use some clever technology to kind of um, in real time make sure that we're totally making the most of the networks that are there. Uh, and I won't get into too much technical detail, but it, it swaps load around it makes takes advantage of the fact that um, uh, people use different uh, demand at different points of the day. Um, so all the sun comes on at once, but the the different levels of demand in different houses allows um, different dispatch. I think all those things will kind of postpone the problem to some extent. But as you get to, as you say, really massive levels of um, 
household solar and so on. Um, just as there is always a, a constraint problem on the transmission network, there will be a constraints problem on the distribution network. And I, I think, um, you know, that's a pretty contested space of transmission where you have a lot of big players. So we're going to have to find some way of doing it uh, kind of relatively simply, relatively straightforwardly, uh, and in a way that really resonates for people as being, you know, clearly fair. Um, and, it, and it's interesting in the, the sort of um, community energy projects that we've done, this is a contentious process when it starts, but by engaging those communities, they really start to get, you know, what's fair for everybody uh, and what works out right. And, and, you know, the current system is effectively a first in, best dressed. And I don't think that's sustainable in the longer term. You know, uh, I mean, personally, enormously excited by the potential for communities. And for me, a community is a street uh, and, uh, to actually be the basic uh, block of the whole grid eventually and to offer network services via batteries in houses and communities and you'd have voltage as a transaction. As I sort of I hope we can talk more about that, but I, I just wanted to get back, uh, well, not get back, but ask from a regulatory perspective, you know, it seems to me that it's difficult, notwithstanding that Osnet's done trials with Arena and is, is ongoing trials and little markets and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, in the end, the AER sort of there, and, and networks have a reputation for gold plating, uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, and, um, uh, you know, it's hard to be an innovator as a network company, isn't it, with the, with the AR not really wanting to allow capital expenditure for anything more than it absolutely has to. I mean, to put it, I, I'll probably put that a little harshly, but that's kind of the overarching sort of principle, isn't it? Yeah, and, and look, um, I'm going to be a tiny bit defensive for two seconds, but I think it, it allows uh, a better conversation. Um, the comments about gold plating... Um, where a particular point in time under particular um, ownership structures. I, um, I, agree with, I agree with that. I, I, and so the Victorian DBs in particular um, were really cleared of that by the Grattan Institute and, and by the ACCC in the end. But I think that's important because I, I just haven't seen the AER being um, unduly difficult in this. They have an important role uh, to make sure that that money that's spent on behalf of consumers actually generates uh, real value, and they have been pretty strict about that, but but worthwhile. I mean, they um, agreed to subsidise our first ever uh, battery trial that just wouldn't have gone ahead with without their support. Um, they agreed um, to support some of the community work that we did in Yakadanda and, and delivered immense benefit to the community. And, and one of the things they've done in our, um, currently at draft decision stage, but um, in, in our recent um, uh, electricity distribution price review is they've absolutely signed up um, to some innovation expenditure that I think historically they wouldn't. And, and the, the condition they've put on that is that we're going to have to um, really demonstrate that a group of customers uh, with some proper governance and education really believe in that innovation. So with our customer forum in the EDPR, we'd suggested some um, innovation expenditure. 
what we found when we asked customers was they were really supportive of anything that supported solar, um, but they were uh, pretty skeptical about anything that supported electric vehicles because, you know, a year ago they really saw electric vehicles as uh, a rich person's sort of plaything. Um, I think as the price of of EVs fall as they become more common, I think there'll be a shift in that. Um, but I think it's just really about, um, uh, you know, going in with a spirit of what is the most efficient way to learn about this and to deliver that innovation. And we have found them, you know, I can't emphasize this enough, and this goes across um, two or three of the AAR chairs. We have found them very supportive of innovation when it was clear that there were going to be customer benefits that wouldn't otherwise be delivered. Uh, so, you know, when it's just us saving money, there's plenty of incentive schemes that give us a, a sharp incentive to just save money. Um, but where it's an innovation that only delivers a benefit to a customer, and as a commercial organisation, we wouldn't see any benefit, then we've seen the AAR be really, um, really thoughtful about that. Okay, and I just ask if I could sneak one more quick one in. Um, it's just really around batteries and particularly community batteries, uh, uh, where I, I guess I see them as a, one of the building blocks. But there is this difficulty where the network gets some of the benefit and maybe uh, you know being able to support more solar, to put it simply, uh, and also some sort of system strength at the network level. Uh, and and the uh, the batteries arguably are much lower uh, cost per customer, uh, but there doesn't seem to be a model to allow it to happen with the current regulatory framework. So I guess my question, two parts is quickly, one, what are you doing in the area of uh, batteries now and community batteries? Uh, and two, do you think you've got the right regulatory model for it? Yeah, I, look, I don't want to bag the regulatory model, but I think it, um, because I think it's changing. I think a few years ago, um, you know, the thinking was, well, we've got to keep these nasty network businesses out of potentially competitive markets and batteries looks exciting and fun. So we'll we'll frame up some rules that would allow networks to do batteries when uh, there's no other choice. But, you know, we really want to frown upon it. I think there's now a recognition, particularly when you look at, um, you know, remote area power and so on, that the networks can be a really good base investor in a community, you know, in a battery that can provide immense value to a community. I, I think when you've got, and this is why community uh, energy is so exciting. I think if you've genuinely got a community saying, we want to do a battery uh, and this is the value we think it gives to us. And this is the value that we think the, the broader network and consumers elsewhere get from it. And you can actually sharpen it. I don't think it's much of an impediment. Um, I mean, my uh, my simple point is that the number of economic use cases uh, where batteries work is, is just multiplying all the time as the prices come down. So when we did our first battery six or seven years ago, um, we made it cheaper by adding a bit of diesel to it. Um, and it was still twice as expensive as what would have been the right economic answer at that time. Um, now, uh, we just see things coming into the money. We're, we're setting something up at Malakuta. You might have seen the ABC is talking about it. 
and, and, and that's a really good economic investment. And we can see quite a few others that we're looking at um, starting to come into the money. So I, I think, um, yeah, the regulatory model wasn't helping, but also the cost stack wasn't helping either. Uh, and I think both of those will get cleared up in the next year or so. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about this Melakuta project. Um, Melakuta has been an interesting one for you for a long time because it is so remote. Um, the power lines have got to go through kilometres, tens of kilometres, hundreds of kilometres um, of forest. Um, it's exposed to all sorts of risks, and particularly with the bushfires that we saw a year ago. So you're proposing a battery there which can provide standalone power at time, so you're not cutting off completely from the grid, or will that be something that might evolve over time? Yeah, well, look, um, I didn't hear everything you said there. I'll just call out for a minute. But um, yeah, Malakuda, um, we're putting in a, a battery that can't supply the whole area. Um, it can supply uh, uh, most of the township. Um, our intention wouldn't be um, to get rid of all those lines into Malakuda. Um there's actually a good reason to keep it. Um, in fact, Malakuda is a net exporter at the minute, so it's exporting solar uh, out to the rest of the grid often. Mm. Um, and, and so actually, um, you know, the network has got a bit of purpose to it uh, in both directions in this model. But what, what we think the battery will be very helpful for is obviously, at the, as you observe, at the end of a long line, uh, hundreds of kilometres long through very forested areas. It, trees hit it all the time. It, it's our most unreliable place. And so the battery is just there. It will cut in instantaneously, effectively, or under a minute um, to keep uh, as many people on supply as possible. Um, and um, even uh, when we saw, you know, uh, the um, Malakuta cut off by the bushfires, we lost that whole big chunks of that line um, we had dropped in a diesel generator there uh, and resupplying it with um, diesel was a real uh, sort of challenge we were very grateful to the Navy uh, they shipped a lot in force and so on and allowed us to keep power onto that that township area um, obviously if you've got a battery and local solar uh, we've still got a few things we need to iron out in, in making this work you know, it can run for days and days and days. Uh, it takes some of the sting of refueling out. It, it, it just seems to us there's the potential there for a very much more resilient resilient network. But, but we don't think it's worth um, today sort of going and taking down uh, all those overhead lines because of that export um, question. Oh. You but, but you're being you're being allowed with with a new standalone um, power system uh, legislation that I'm not too sure whether it's completely gone through yet, but it's on its way through at least. Um, I think the final draft has been um, submitted, and you're seeing in WA and in Queensland and New South Wales lots of um, communities. It could be individuals, or could they be groups of people being taken off the grid? Do you imagine that having to any great extent in in Victoria at all? Yeah, well, um, I can't talk about it yet because we're still working through it. But we've got um, quite a number of uh, places that we're, we think they'll really make sense. And it is, it is those remoter communities. And we do have, you know, Osnet is a predominantly rural network. 
Um, and we do see places that, um, and you know, sadly, the places that were affected by bushfires uh, last summer, um, there's a number of places there where, where we think the right answer would be um, a remote um, power supply. Um, and, uh, and, and we think we can work through that. It, it might not be 100% green at this stage, but, um, but we think it would certainly be more resilient for the local communities. David, are you there? David might have missed the um, mute button or something. Um, I've got another question. Sorry, I, I have. I have missed the uh, <laughs> mute button. Here I am. And I'm, I'm conscious that, uh, you know, we, we, we need to wind up very quickly. And I just wanted to comment that I think these uh, remote area solutions are going to, you know, become more and more, find their way, work their way in from the outside of the grid to the centre of the grid as time goes on. Uh, and, 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 and that's the, that's the function of the wires and the poles and why the distributors will be able to coordinate the whole thing. Uh, exactly. Look, uh, uh, David, uh, can I just add something to that? Sorry to, to be an enthusiast, but one of the things that I found personally very difficult last summer was we are really good at rebuilding um, poles and wires. That's what we're set up to do in an emergency. You know, in advance of the, we knew it was going to be a tough bushfire season. We bought extra poles you know, made sure we had plenty of stores. We were ready to go. Uh, and then I saw wires that were burnt out in these remote um, uh, rural areas. And you just wished we had a few batteries and a couple of diesel generators and so on that were equally in our stores uh, ready to go. And it's that sort of sense of how do you get the innovative products uh, kind of battle hardened so that the next time we have... Um, big losses of, of networks and so on. Actually, we're just as quick at rolling out uh, this sort of supply. And I, and I think that would test the regulatory model as it stands. Um, but that's something that I think um, all the distributors will look at over the next little while. Yeah, and as I look forward to the technology, my, my view is that uh, the other thing the grid, the re, these remote power things provide is, is, is these ancillary services. By definition, if it's running standalone, it's able to maintain frequency, maintain voltage, has its own synthetic inertia, has an inverter sitting there that's providing a, a grid forming sort of thing. And if you can do it on a remote uh, region, you can do it on, uh, on an outer suburb street, uh, you can do it closer and closer, and eventually the overall network uh, can is is incredibly resilient uh, to anything, to, and and can be providing a massive amount of system strength and sending it out as required to to the broader broader network. That that's kind of uh, and you know coming back to the original point, this is where I don't think the ESB has thought hard enough about how to do this, and it's got too caught up on individual micro markets and things like virtual power plants, but. You know, perhaps that's a, 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 that's a, that was a speech, not a question, and I, I might hand back to you, Giles. <laughs> that's okay, David. Um, Alistair, a response to that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I've got a great one. I mean, we did that um, trial in a suburban street probably four years ago. Uh, 17 houses in the street, 15 with um, solar and batteries that we provided them. Uh, we put in an artificial... Uh, kind of inertia box. Uh, I'm insulting it by just calling it that. It was a really clever piece of, of kit. And we took them on the grid, off the grid, uh, saw how it had a play, saw how many days they could stay off supply. And I think we got them to, to three days with real care. 
it was just, you know, the technology is there or thereabouts to do everything you're talking about, David. That's not real innovation. It's just, it's just getting on and making it happen, I think. Mm-hmm. And I hope the networks do make it happen, and the, the network uh, and the models, uh, the models, the regulatory models allow, allow it to happen. Anyhow, uh, because all these coal-fired generators are going to go away, as a, and and we're going to need to replace their system services. And I think networks and locals communities are actually uh, rather than great big separate standalone batteries can be a large part of the solution. But but that's an evolving area, uh, Alistair. I I think we've probably done our time for one podcast I, I i understand you're finishing up or moving on from osnet in a while after a very distinguished career uh, uh like to uh wish you all the best i guess on behalf of the energy insiders podcast or at least myself uh for for for, for the next 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 steps oh thanks and uh, real delight to join both of you today and i would like to note i was your first ever energy insiders podcast so i i feel you're ongoing success you know i i feel a tiny bit of ownership for that david as well. so <laughs> congratulations success well, of parents yeah absolutely we'll, we'll, we'll send you some we'll send you some royalties alistair but um, i wouldn't count on it for your retirement but uh, no, no. <laughs> thank you Charles. We'll, have, thank we'll you. have to get a we'll have to get a t-shirt giles I, oh, I, I was a guest on the energy insiders podcast oh absolutely only yes. <laughs> contested they would be very good hey, look, i've just got one very quick question i'm 100 renewables yak and dander and stuff like that um fascinating project um the community has been very, very grateful for the support um, of Osnet um, through that process. What has that, just just very briefly, what has that told your company about the future of energy? Uh, um, My key learning um, is that it's only by engaging with communities that you can have a proper discussion, uh, a trusted discussion about what's technically feasible right now, and what needs to wait a year or two. Um, we we were really lucky in the sense that we put some really thoughtful people who are very genuine about working in partnership onto that project. So they really listened to the totally renewable Yak and Danda folk and really they just sat down and identified with the objectives of that group. So rather than sitting down and saying no to everything, they sat down and talked about how they could meet their objectives as much as possible. And it just changed the dynamic by genuinely having um, tries uh, interests at heart. And so I think until we as an energy industry really convince people that we have their interests at heart, uh, you know, and I think community groups is the way to do that. Um, it's only then that we'll really get on with the transition. I keep saying to our engineers, the engineering is the easy bit of this because you know it's tractable. You can work it out. It's actually having um, customers who believe you've got their interests at heart. That's the really difficult part. Mm. And we haven't lived up to that historically as an industry. Fascinating piece of insight, Alistair. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for being our very first guest on the podcast. Thank you for um, joining this podcast again as one of your last acts at Osnet and all the best for the future. And thank you. Thanks very much, David and Giles. That's great. 
And that was Alistair Parker, the uh, Head of Regulatory and uh, External Affairs at Osnet. Um, interesting stuff, David. Um, I'm still fascinated by this little tension between the networks and the retailers and how they all sort that out. Um, no one's really got a good handle on what, what this looks like. Um, and neither, I don't think, as it sort of emerged um, during the interview, um, does the ESB. Um, I just hope that whatever it does create is going to be flexible enough to be able to adapt to what is going to be a very changing, rapidly changing situation in the market. Yes. Uh, look, we could talk a lot about the ESB, and we have done, and it's, it is the most progressive of the institutions, and it's great that we're doing this post-2025 uh, markets framework, but I personally think they need to think harder about it. I guess if there was one thing I would say, it's a, it's a shame there wasn't someone from the younger generation or the next generation of uh, engineers or people who can, who can perhaps got a better, uh, more comfortable with the newer technology coming through uh, than people that have been uh, used to the old way, older ways of doing things. There's a lot of technology change and I'm not sure the ESB's way of thinking about it is, is the whole story in how to unify all that change and to come forward with a unified model. But we, we'll be talking lots more about that too. Well, if two crusty old blokes like us can uh, get, get the minds across it, then <laughs> the ESB can too. But anyway, um, interesting stuff. Um, what else has been happening around the tracks while we've been away, David? Um, I haven't seen very many new wind and solar projects. Um, AGL came out with a rush of big battery storage um, announcements at the start of the year, one in Western Sydney and um, another one down in Victoria. Um, apart from that, all the action seems to be happening in the coal and the gas markets. Yes, so the uh, La Nina that you referred to has produced an unusually and unexpectedly cold Northern Hemisphere winter, as I'm sure anyone who's been following the news has noticed. And as a result of that, uh, gas prices have absolutely gone through the uh, ceiling, and, and that's why predicting prices is such a silly business. Uh, whereas we were talking about, uh, you know, something like, uh, I don't know, 4 or $5 a, a gigajoule, uh, we've seen transactions up around spot transactions up around US thirty dollars a gigajoule. Now that won't last, but it certainly uh, makes everyone think hard about. You know, one of the benefits that wind and solar has always operated is the is the predictability of the cost, uh, provided there are no transmission constraints. Whereas with fuel, you have the cost of capital is higher because you have to uh, uh, value this uncertainty that you don't can't really predict the price in the longer term a lot of, uh, for a lot of it. As you say, not too many uh, brand new wind and solar projects uh, just recently, but we have seen this big battery thing. And I think it's worth mentioning that in AGL's battery announcement, uh, it was one of the bigger contracts that I can recall that Fluence have got because most of them have gone to um, uh, uh, Tesla so far in Australia. So it's nice to see some uh, big battery uh, competition there. But also uh, you may not have seen while uh, you were away that to Tesla for their rooftop uh, batteries or the, their home batteries actually put the price in the USA up again. Uh, so this will be another year where we're not quite seeing the price reductions that uh, four or five years ago, I was pretty confident we would have seen by now for household batteries. Absolutely. In fact, yes, a lot of people were very confident that they would come down, but they haven't. The actual cost of the sales is coming down, but not the retail price of the batteries. Um, but um, that's something we might actually explore in coming episodes. Um, David, I think that's probably enough for today. Um, it's great to be back on the podcast. Thanks to, once again, our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen, who uh, are with us again. And we thank them very much for their ongoing support, as we do for all our listeners who have tuned in, and um, I think we've got over half a million um, downloads accumulated um, sometime last year. 
um, which is fantastic. And uh, we do appreciate your support. Um, do send us any observations, hints, suggestions, um, possible guests, and um, we'll be back again this time next week. And I, c- I can already confidently predict that our guest next week will have lots of interesting things to say. So it's- About what, David? About what? Give us another hint then. Well, more grid-forming inverters and the, and the wonderful role that they're going to, and necessary role that they're going to play in enabling all the coal-fired generators to go away without uh, causing any problems to inertia and frequency and system strength and all those wonderful buzzwords. That's uh, it's all you know. The wonderful community sort of story is going to get stronger and stronger and stronger as we go on. And, uh, and and we're going to find that the new electricity system is going to be, in some ways, I think, more democratic than the old one and something that we Australians can all be very proud of. Fantastic. And don't forget to send this and that upcoming episode to your local National Party MP, and we'll be back again soon. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future.